This is Nathan Tankus, and this is the Notes on the Crises podcast, podcast associated with my newsletter, Notes on the Crises. My first guest is Joe Weisenthal of Bloomberg News and All Things Odd Lots, and I'm here to talk about what Joe can't stop talking about uh, the last six months or so, which is supply chains, everything that's going wrong with them, what could go right with them, and what do they say about the larger economic issues that we're facing. So, Joe, uh, if you want to introduce yourself, then uh, yeah, you thank you. For, uh, this is like a real treat that uh, I, this is the first one, right? So I'm the fir- I'm the yeah. inaugural guest. You're the first one. Uh, I had to go with you first. Thank you. Very kind. I, you know, obviously, I'm a big fan of your stuff, and it really has been uh, a fast. We sort of stumbled into it on the Odd Lots podcast. We started like I think it was like January, and Tracy, my co-host, was like. You know, shipping rates from uh, China to the U.S. are really high. Maybe we should do an episode on that. And I don't think, like, it was not, you know, supply chains in, in – what's interesting is last March or, like, March 2020 when the virus hit or maybe February 2020 when we knew there was a virus or pandemic but we uh, or a virus, but we didn't know it was going to be a big public health emergency. The first thing we actually started talking about back then was supply chains. We're like, well, are Apple's suppliers going to get hit? Will they be able to get chips? And then quickly the story became the sort of macro story and the health emergency story. And the supply chain story, like supply chains basically held up fine for the most part in 2020. And like we talked about toilet paper a little bit. But by and large, given all the disruption to society, it was kind of surprising how well things did hold up. There really weren't a ton of out of stock goods for much of 2020. And then I think it was like January and Trace is like, you know, shipping rates from China, the U.S. are really like picking up. And we did an episode and then we just started scratching that itch, and uh, it was like, oh, that was super interesting. And then the Ever Given happened with uh, the boat that got stuck in the Nile. So it's like, oh, let's do another thing on boats. And then that led us to the ports discussion. And so it was not intentional, but we were very fortunate to have like begun a conversation very early on about how the global supply chain works, such that we've probably done like at least a dozen episodes on them. And had the chance to like sort of like watch this story unfold with uh, the entire world, who for many people is probably the first time they ever thought about like how a good actually like gets to the shelves of a store. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how I've, you know, kind of picked up the story from you, obviously paying, paying my own attention. But you've, you know, had access to all these people and yeah. gotten all these different views on all these different components from what's going on with sawdust to... Right. Uh, uh, the ports and trains. Um, but before we get into any more of that kind of specific sure. stuff, I kind of want to, you know, get like, you know, you've had all these different interviews where you've gotten a strong sense of the different pieces and components. And I know you're doing even more. I think you have one coming up on air freight coming yeah. soon. Um, but what is, you know, from all these interviews, what is the kind of big picture that you're kind of gleaning about how all these different components, which you can spend hours talking about each one, kind of fit together and what and what they say about what's going on about supply chains in general. So I would say I have like a few big thoughts. And, you know, again, like this is I'm by no means a expert, but I'm just someone who's like just trying to learn by uh, talking to people. But I have a few like big thoughts. And one is, you know, by and large, I think that when you look at like what we call the supply chain crisis, it's only marginally useful to actually b- break it down in terms of supply and demand and the idea like that these are like 
discrete things that we can like say, oh no, it's you have these some people say, like, oh, it's this is all of these breakdowns are because we did a bunch of phys- fiscal stimulus and demand for goods is off the charts. That's why it's breaking down. And then you have other people who are more like, no, it's because blah blah blah. Th- this piece didn't get to this piece because the virus and etc. And you know, by and large, I kind of think like. There, it's that's not a particularly fruitful way to think about it. I mean, there is a lot of demand for physical goods, particularly in the U.S. coming from China. The number of uh, containers arriving at the port of L.A. is extremely high. So there is like a uh, demand element, but then there are also elements of it that just the the way it operates is like breaks down. And I think like one of the most, you know, fascinating things that we discussed extremely uh, early on in that is that part of the issue why we started talking about uh, cargo freight is simply that the U.S. started importing a lot from more from China uh, uh, in the way, you know, in the recovery period of this, but it was not vice versa. And so orders from, you know, we don't export a ton of stuff to China, but we do export some. And that did not pick up as much. And so what you had was essentially these ships that would uh, uh, come to the U.S., drop off their goods. And historically, they might wait around for an order of uh, uh, something, you know, to bring back to China, but they weren't waiting around. And so they would get to China and they would not have containers because normally they would have brought a bunch of containers back with them. They didn't. And to me, that sort of dynamic where they would not wait around for containers, they would get to China and then China wound up with like a shortage of containers to ship back to the U.S. because there was not the sort of like normal two-way flow. That to me was sort of the ground zero, like the first like real like, okay, this is like a fundamental like sort of like shift or the pendulum got knocked off its normal course and this is like a new thing. So that's one thing. The other big factor um, that I've learned, and I don't think that this is something that like sort of macro or economists probably ever think about very much, is that I've been, and this is certainly a shock to me, is just how loose the conventions are with the sort of business of global logistics. So, you know, when ships are running uh, beneath capacity, you know, you don't think about, it's like, well, you know, like, think about it this way. Like, you get in a taxi cab, you know, you don't really have like a legal contract with the taxi cab driver to pay at the end. It's just sort of like they assume that you're like not going to jump out. Or if you like buy a ticket at an Amtrak uh, station to go to Washington, D.C. on a train, you know, there's like you don't really like buy this legally binding contract that says you're going to get on the next train. And in fact, if you uh, um, uh, it could happen that the train fills up and you don't have a seat. Most of the time, that's basically how global shipping works. Like you like make an agreement with some shipper to, okay, we're going to pick up your container in uh, China and ship it to L.A. But and most of the time that works fine, except if there's like if there's no room on the boat, uh, then, you know, there's no real obligation. You don't really actually have like a legally binding contract. So that was like eye opening for me, like this sort of like the level of formality and so much now about whether you get your your container on the boat from uh, China to the U.S. is like, do you know the guy in Copenhagen who's like running things for Maersk or one of the other like big shipping companies? And it's not much more than that. And that's kind of like what it comes down to. And then once the container gets to the U.S. and gets has to move via truck or something, that's even further loose 
because a lot of that, and I wrote about this uh, recently uh, in my newsletter, it's like it's like WhatsApp group and Facebook groups where people are like, hey, is anyone in Peoria, Illinois, who can take uh, an, uh, a, a container of unrefrigerated goods to um, Dallas? And it's literally just like Facebook groups and Telegram groups and WhatsApp groups and other things like Craigslist, et cetera, where people are just posting message boards like, oh, I'm in, our, I'm in Little Rock. I can pick up this. And so the entire like, <clears throat> you know, in normal times, I guess this sort of like informality works fine because there's plenty of capacity. But I think we're seeing that this sort of like it's pretty like it's all the whole thing's kind of held together with duct tape in a way that I really did not appreciate previously. Yeah, I want to get back to the big picture yeah. uh, in a second, but I want to pick up on one of the strands of, of what you were just saying, which I think is really important, which is, you know, we think about, you know, global trade. Often we think about, you know, really money flows or monetary valuations. We think about, oh, the U.S. is running a trade yeah. deficit and China's running a trade, trade surplus. And that's what really matters. And I think in the in our mental model that these concepts invoke for us, there's this idea, oh, well, you know, we're sending a little bit to China, but not that much. Um, and China is sending a ton of stuff for us. So in that mental model, it kind of is confusing to think about, oh, you know, the, this, this, um, you know, this balance of, yeah. you know, container sh ships go and containers get filled up and they come back here, they got unloaded, they get filled up again, that on a physical level, yeah. that th these things were in balance, that we had balance yeah. trend literally physically of, you know, you know, we were filling up, uh, yeah. you know, container ships with, you know, say like industrial equipment and they were sending back iPhones, which, you know, have a ton of labor and other things that are, go into their creation, but are actually physically small devices. And because of that, trade has physically balanced, yeah. even if we have trade deficits and trade surpluses. And for continuing trade to go and, you know, for the system to be held together, that physical balance is actually really important. And when that things get physically, physically out of balance, that's when so many of these supply chain issues happen rather than kind yeah. of supply and demand in this more kind of abstract money sense. No, I think that's really well articulated and I hadn't quite thought of it in that point. But obviously, look, like we both of us look at uh, things often through the MMT framework. And I do think this is like a really good example, almost exactly as you describe it, where uh, conventionally speaking, economists or mainstream commenters on the economy get very anxious about um, sort of like financial flows and accounting flows uh, supposedly being out of balance, right? And people are always talking about imbalances or closing this. And it turned out that the big issue that, you know, the first time we sort of have like, I guess in a way, a trade crisis with China turns out to be like on the real resources side. And the physical side was in was in balance, like it worked, and maybe the sort of like nominal dollar value of what was going from uh, uh, west to east was not as same as the nominal dollar value in the other direction, but nonetheless, there was a balance or there was something that worked, and it really was that disruption of the physical side. And, you know, um, Ryan Peterson, who we 
Uh, he's uh, a CEO of this logistics company called Flexport. We've had him on the show a couple of times. And he's been doing a lot of Twitter threads, uh, raising his profile quite a bit. And he's like, oh, what I see is going on at the Port of Los Angeles is worse than Lehman. And I don't know. To me, intuitively, that's like, I don't know. That seems like a little bit hyperbolic. But nonetheless, he then made the point. He's like, look, when we have a financial crisis, we have like a pretty clear like playbook what we do about it. We create a bunch of money and we make people whole. And... That may be politically unpalatable, but it's we certainly know how to do it. You just either have to uh, you just have to supply the votes in Congress. We don't have like the equivalent for the real resources crisis. Now, again, I don't think like we're seeing like a huge like, implosion of the economy the way we saw in the fallout of the great financial crisis. Hopefully not. Um, but it is a, it was an articulation of exactly essentially the point that you made that like this is the where, where the rubber really hits the road with this stuff is on the the sort of the real resource the real resources side and not the accounting side. So I, I want to get back to that in a second, but I think I want to pick up on on the other thing that you said that I think is really important, which is trying to think about this in a kind of supply and demand. Well, there's just not enough supply and there's too much demand. That doesn't really fit and that doesn't really yeah. work. And I want to like draw that out more by, you know, talking about how we usually think about this metaphor. Yeah. It's, well, there's households and there's consumers and then there's firms and the firms either, they either have the supply or they don't. And right. if they have the supply, we can get the supply and it's great. And, or they don't have the supply and then there's a problem. We need price increases, inflation, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, But in terms of all the things we're talking about, even the very term supply chains, households are a side story. They're there on, you know, it matters that they are buying more goods because especially upper middle class people are Mm -hmm. staying home more and not going out, not devoting their spending power to services the way they would before. And they're instead of just not spending, they're, you know, reallocating to goods. But really in the supply chain story, that stuff is a sideshow to businesses, Mm -hmm. to businesses purchasing goods from other businesses who are in turn purchasing goods from other businesses, who are in turn purchasing goods from other businesses, and so on. And that it's really, rather than there's this supply and there's this demand, there is this interrelated set of physical flows, which we have a whole set of institutions or don't have a whole set of institutions, as the case may be, to make sure that those physical flows are happening the, the way that they should. Yeah. And our main problem, as we were just getting to before, is the coordination of those physical flows. And of course, you know, being able to afford them and purchase them matters too. But it's really about the coordination of these physical flows going through all these different pockets of the economy, you know, through and throughout the globe, all these different geographic places and plants and firms and ports and uh, and so on. And at the end of that process, households, well, you know, goods might get delayed to them for a few months or even six months. And that matters in some sense. They are not the active agents in this story. The active yeah. agents are the business people and the workers who are coordinating this process or struggling to coordinate this process. I- you, I, I think that's spot on. And, you know, a, a, a sort of like metaphor that I keep using in my head as we go through all of these like discussions is sort of like in physics, like the difference between like potential and kinetic energy. 
And it's, I feel like we don't really have a shortage of potential energy. It's like, we don't actually have like any sort of like good shortage. Like, you know, like we talk about, okay, they're like ships coming into the port of Los Angeles are waiting like nine days or something, just sitting in the water waiting for their chance to to unload their goods, right? Like th- that means the goods are there. That means there's not actually like a goods shortage in in the conventional senses. And th- we're not really like, experiencing some like, oh, there is the firms on the sort of supply side. It's not like they're incapable of the production. The problem is either the goods, the finished goods or the intermediary goods are on boats sitting off of Port of Los Angeles. And so it's almost like the potential energy is there, but it's like in the kinetic energy that we're lacking. And so exactly as you describe, you know, if we just think of these sort of like two discrete entities, you have businesses and they make the stuff and households and they buy the stuff. Well, these sort of like simplistic models don't really account for the fact that there is this whole supply chain that gets the goods from the business to the households. And you might have plenty of stuff as if, you know, pure like the stock of goods and you might have the demand for it. But if something breaks down in that coordination, the movement of the goods from the businesses to the household or the businesses to a business or the business to a business to a business to a business, then what is it then, you know, the pure volume of stuff may not be like the key operative thing that you're trying to measure. And again, I think this is like, this is pretty tough stuff to measure. Like it would be hard to imagine that you could ever like cleanly come up with some number that would like sort of, that would capture the, you know, the speed at which goods can flow or some sort of like real resources equivalent to velocity or something like that. Yeah. So now let's, you know, get touch on a little bit more of the specifics. Sure. You know, you've mentioned the ports a few times. Yeah. I know the LA port is like especially, well, a, a port that is being talked about a ton mm-hmm. um, in the context of all this. So like what, what is going on with the ports and why, why are we keep on talking about it or why is it such a big deal? What, yeah. what is happening with the ports? So, I mean, you know, like everything is under strain, you know, one other element and I just want to, you know, going back to this idea of like the supply side disruption and I hadn't appreciated this at all, but, um, uh, commercial or sort of passenger aviation had actually been an important component of uh, or marginal supply of uh, cargo space. And so you have like a passenger flight from China to the U.S. or something. There is commercial cargo in the hull of that plane. And that obviously has gone to like close to zero. And so like there is a classic like sort of like something on the supply side they don't really think about as like supply per se that has really gotten disrupted by virus. And so, you know, again, really hard to disambiguate that. People stopped flying internationally. That contributed to a shortage that put more strain on the actual ships than there otherwise um, would have been. You know, I think like at the port specifically, there are a few different reasons why we like keep coming back to this. I mean, there is just sort of like that visual, right? That you can see all the ships. You can see nine days worth of ships. And that seems sort of crazy. Like the idea is like, wow, it takes like night of, you know, we did a story at Bloomberg. It's like, they're just hanging out on the boat. Like they're doing, you know, they do some maintenance and stuff, but the ship workers are like doing karaoke and drinking beers. Not too much. Cause I think they like try to like limit how much like anyone can get drunk on a big ship, but like, you know, dr- kicking back, drinking beers, probably playing video games, doing karaoke because they're literally just sitting in the water for nine days while they're unloading. So everyone can see that. And then there is the issue of, so they, you know, 
often uh, these goods eventually wind up on a truck, but there's two sets of trucking networks. 95% of the truck of the trucking market is the sort of like over the road trucks that you see on a highway, like going from Peoria, Illinois to Dallas. But then the other 5% is called the drayage market, which is a very different market structure. We could get into that, which is just picking up the containers at the ports and moving those uh, uh, containers to inland California uh, warehouses. The warehouses have largely gotten full because of uh, things are slow. So that makes it hard, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen this uh, effort by the administration to get everything moving 24-7. That's going to be an insanely difficult task. A, it's not like, you know, if anyone who's reading the news knows it's not like there's like tons of like, uh, you know, it's not the easiest hiring market. So if you want, if you run a warehouse or if you have like a local trucking operation, everyone knows it's not the easiest time to hire. And so... A, just like going 24-7 is tougher from a human capital standpoint, but the local towns understandably have rules that say like you can't can't deliver goods past 8 p.m. because the warehouses might have neighbors and might not want to hear trucks uh, going by uh, down the street or across the street uh, past 8 p.m. when people want to sleep. So the thicket of issues that basically... Uh, and I think I'm just scratching the surface with some of the regulations that are in place that make it uh, harder or some of the rules or conventions, et cetera. The thicket of issues that arise for something that's like, oh, let's just make it run 24-7 and do it faster is um, is pretty staggering. And then you get these situations where it's like because, you know, then then the ripple effects ripple out and then you put strain on the rail system and then – you have all the like, you know, then you like read about like Chicago, for example, is still like a major terminal or terminus for uh, rail all around the U.S. And then you get the rail back up there because there are so many cars to unload coming out. And so I really think like the ports are like very visual, like we can, but also that's sort of the the difficulty of just the sheer physical difficulty of unloading goods from the ports, getting them to the inland warehouses, and then getting them out from the inland warehouses to the rest of the country. Uh, it's just numerous reasons why that alone is difficult, and then and then the problems ripple out. And the problems rippling out, what we mean specifically by that is they're rippling out through all the different ways that we transport goods, You know, which, yes. which I think is, is, is worth talking about. You know, we have what you, you say, you know, there, there's some aviation uh, mm-hmm. shipping, but a lot of that goes through commercial planes that yep. then have, you know, have some extra storage space. They get stuffed with uh, with goods, which relies on there being a lot of passenger flights yep. at the same time. So when that when that comes down, especially internationally, that's a, a line that's clogged off. We have these gigantic boats that are bringing goods from, from around the world, and these boats have been getting bigger and bigger, yep. you know, in trying to save costs per per yep. good because everything is cut to the bone. Yep. We have, we still have something of a rail system in the U.S., an outdated, yep. antiquated system that hasn't been updated in, in decades and add, added more lines yeah. and so on, where goods are transported uh, that way. And, you know, because we have that antiquated uh, system for shipping goods all around. And, you know, there are a lot of places where the ports aren't really much of an option for shipping. You know, they they themselves have been 
decayed. You know, we have these big ports that we're bringing in things internationally, but we don't have kind of regional shipping in the same way we used to. So then there is trucking, short uh, short haul trucking yeah. and long haul trucking that does a lot that, you know, picks up the slack, quote unquote, and also do, usually is the thing actually doing the work of shipping a good yeah. to the retail store that you're bringing it to because we don't have kind of local rail yes. that does that job of bringing goods the way they might have done with, you know, using, you know, the trolley rails or whatever uh, a century ago. Is that? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's right. And, you know, I think like, look, the the trucking market, too, there's just so much to dive into on the sort of like the long haul truck. I mean, there it's really interesting and it's something I want to explore further the compare and contrast of the uh, short haul trucking and the long haul trucking. They both have their own issues. You know, there was a really amazing uh, USA Today expose, I think in 2017, that people should read about the very poor labor conditions of the short haul truckers. And basically many of them were put in this position where they were expected to go into debt to buy their trucks or finance them. And uh, these sort of like brutal conditions, many people went bankrupt. I think a lot of parallels to um, sort of the taxi industry in certain cities where really um, very dicey uh, financial arrangements for the drivers. The long haul truckers, it's a little different. There, there are numerous problems in that. They're a little different. One is there's virtually no barriers to entry uh, in long haul trucking, you and I, Nathan and Tracy and I have joked about this, but maybe it won't be a joke. Um, could start a trucking company in in days, and there's an incredible boom bust cycle. So take the year 2019, which from like a macro standpoint, I think it was 2019, maybe 2018. Um, 2019, I think though, 2019, like I don't think like for most people was like that memorable of a year economically, right? Like, you know, it's like 2019. Okay. I don't remember what happened. Economy grew a couple percent, whatever. It was one of the worst years for trucking bankruptcies in history. And there is this incredible like boom bust cycle that very marginal changes in the supply and demand because of uh, how many new companies, something like, I forget the number, but something like in the last like few months, like 20,000 new trucking companies have been registered in the United States. And that's not an exaggeration. Now, the trucking companies might just be one truck, it might be two or three, but you know, you have this situation in which it's very extremely wide swings in the fortunes. And so that makes it sort of like, you know, do you really like want to like make a career in trucking when it's so unstable, the economics, the health, you know, there haven't really been any productivity gains, I don't think, for like truck drivers. So, uh, you know, trucking is not a pleasant career. You're on the road a lot. You don't see your family a lot. There are numerous health problems associated with uh, truck drivers. There are all kinds of ways in which they're exploited. Um, goods at uh, truck stops are extremely expensive from what I understand. So if you want to buy like a bottle of shampoo at a truck stop, it's much more than that same bottle of shampoo at a Walmart, but you might not be able to park in a Walmart. So if you're driving a truck, you have to worry about where you can park. And if the only easy place you can park is at a truck stop, then you basically, you have to pay like uh, the truck stop cost. Cause you, you know, you can't just like leave your truck somewhere and then, you know, walk to a uh, cheaper place. So it is like a, uh, an industry that has deep structural problems, challenges that have like 
long preceded the COVID crisis. And it is the biggest employer. You know, tr- uh, truck driving is actually the single biggest occupation, from what I understand, in the United States, or at least in numerous states. It is a you know deeply difficult area to recruit. And as such, this you know this sort of like crucial component of getting the goods was already in this like deep like structural problem. It just come out of one of its worst busts ever. The pace of growth, of uh, or the pace of retention, something like I forget the number. Some huge percentage of the truck drivers on the road are over the age fifty five. There are not a lot of new uh, truck drivers coming into the market. Again, for all the reasons laid about, it's not a particularly attractive career proposition for many people. So this sort of like beating heart of the logistics system has been in sort of this like internal decay for a while. And again, one of these things that probably most people didn't think about until the point until we get to the point where we suddenly realize, well, we are incredibly reliant and any added extra demand or any sort of added pressure that we put on the system uh, causes deep strains. Right. So, you know, and that, that kind of brings, you know, back to a little bit more of the big picture of, you know, we have all these, you know, institutions which have their workers, whether they're longshoremen or yeah. people who are port workers, short haul truckers, long haul truckers, you know, people who, you know, who work for the rail company, yeah. are, you know, loading and unloading trains. You know, we have all, we have all these sets of this infrastructure for getting, things from point A to point B to point C and so on. And all of them require, you know, you know, relatively small percentage of the workers that are in, you know, the United States, let alone the global economy. But these aren't necessarily institutions which have been built or taken care of in such a way to be able to deal with the kind of problems or you know, big emergencies that might happen. You know, we, we don't have, you know, the ports weren't hiring additional workers. They weren't building a lot of like access storage space for containers. We, we didn't have uh, ships lying, lying uh, fallow in case more goods started to be shipped in the way that you might imagine reserve, you know, for uh, firms or plants keeping, reserve capacity in case, you know, something comes up where they need to rev up that capacity. Yeah. We we haven't had, you know, truck drivers who were getting paid to still be truck drivers, even though they weren't shipping full time because there yeah. wasn't a full time worth of goods or not shipping at all, really. You know, all these things that, you know, you could imagine these shock absorbers for the economy, but they cost money. Yeah. It, it, it's it's financially costly with not a direct immediate benefit to build in all these shock, shock absorbers. And we haven't had, in some places, we don't have any institution that could even make that decision. So, you know, in trucking, for example, so much of the trucking is independent contractors who have been right. kind of driven into worse and worse conditions by these big buyers who have a lot of bargaining power. There's no one who would necessarily even be making that decision directly. Yeah, it's totally right. And it's interesting to think about, like, okay, again, there's so many. What you just described obviously has these echoes in the financial crisis, except that was on the financial side. Right. And so it's like as soon as like, the you know, the stock market crashed in March 2020 and the Fed had intervened, there were a lot of people that wanted to like shoehorn the story into 2008, 2009. Like, oh, this is what happens 
because of like too much debt or finding, you know, it didn't make any, you know, it's like people just want to like re relitigate the, the, the bailouts or whatever. And it really was not like a financial story per se, but the, the parallels are more that, you know, the buffers that in retrospect, we wish the banks had had and other financial institutions that in retrospect maybe have been over levered. We see them on the real economy side. And so we see like these sort of like supply chains where there was not uh, spare capacity, which might be likened to having, you know, an excess uh, capital buffer, whatever it is. And it is interesting to think about, like, as the point you just made, like, there's no institution that can really, like, do anything. Like, at least after the financial crisis, and you could have, like, some institution like the Fed or some other regulators and tell the banks, like, you can't be as levered, right, on some level. And maybe it'll, maybe they did enough, maybe they didn't. Uh, not, but at some point they're like, no, you can you have to like take fewer risks, right? And you have like the Basel requirements is like, you have to take fewer risks. Even now, you know, there would not be like, let's say we get to some point in the year 2022 and things are moving slowly. And it's like, man, we really just like learned that um, uh, we really uh, had underinvested in the human capital side of trucking or whatever, it's not obvious. There is not the equivalent of like some regulator for the trucking industry that can like make some unilateral decision that from here on out, we're going to have more spare capacity. It might be a good idea to build resilience into the system, to build more, uh, to mandate that, you know, the ports do not have, you know, do have uh, spare capacity and so forth. I don't really see anyone doing that. I don't really see, you know, there is some money in, in the infrastructure bill that will go to the ports. I don't know if it's enough. But by and large, it's not obvious to me that when we come out of this, there is going to be some like, especially if there's no like, especially if demand isn't sustained in some meaningful way. I mean, that would be the hope, right? That we have like the sort of sustained demand, a new trajectory of GDP growth such that businesses just like want to invest more, which would be nice. Um, but in terms of like the spare capacity that you're talking about, yeah, it's not obvious that we like any entity, whether private or public, could make the call or make the decision or is inclined to make the decision, let's have more capacity on hand for future. I could see it happening in some niche areas. Like, look, I think like a lot of people were pretty taken off uh, surprise last year by like the PPE shortage. So it's like, okay, maybe we want to like build up reserves of that. The semiconductor, you know, another thing that we've talked a lot about on the podcast is the semiconductor shortage. Even there though, think about this, like even there, like with semiconductors, there seems to be this like political appetite in the US, in like uh, Washington DC from both Democrats and Republicans to build up, to revive American capacity. And even where there is like a pretty like bipartisan, like sort of consensus, like, yes, let's invest public money to build up capacity with uh, chip manufacturing because we have this chip shortage. Even there, they can't actually seem to like get the bill over the line, even though this is something that like, you know, everyone from like Tom Cotton to Chuck Schumer takes very seriously and Biden had a whole uh, thing about chips. Even there, they're having trouble getting the um, the bill over the line to invest in domestic capacity for manufacturing of semiconductors. And so, like, there is just not obviously any sort of, like, switch, let alone or political will, to actually, like, start to think about, like, building up 
supply capacity domestically such that we learn the lessons of this situation? You know, one way to summarize that is, you know, we had capital requirements, we have reserve requirements in terms of banks, you know, you can imagine something like a reserve capacity requirement. Yeah, you know, and absolutely, you know, and the other thing is, too, we we see a lot of parallels with uh, energy, right? And, you know, you have these situations, and this happened recently with, like, uh, this was a story that happened in the UK, but I don't know if you remember, like, a few weeks ago, like, the wind stopped blowing for, like, three or four days. Like, they just had, like, uncharacter- uncharacteristically nice weather, but because there was not a ton of, like, natural gas, like, flowing out, like, prices shot up, right? So it's like... It, you should. It, we shouldn't be in these situations anywhere in sort of like developed, ostensibly like you know wealthy economies where it becomes like this big like crisis that the wind stops blowing for three or four days and everyone's like electricity bill goes up. That's the UK, but the idea remains like it would be nice in theory to start building up uh, capital buffers for sort of like core physical goods, but it's not obvious that they're going to happen. Yeah. I think from from there, I wanted to maybe get a little bit more of the specifics that you've been talking about. You know, sure. this is this is you know, I didn't dive into this one a ton, but I guess I, I am I am curious a, about just touching on it. You know, more just for interest than yeah. really being so important for the bigger picture. But uh, what is going on with sawdust, and why is it so important? Oh. What's going on with sawdust? <laughs> Actually, I don't even think there really is anything going on with uh, sawdust. <laughs> but, you know, like my colleague uh, Tracy, like, loves this story. And I forget. I wish I, gotta, I wish I could, like, pull it up or whatever. I don't have. But it's like but it's kind of like there's like there's like something something happened where there was like after like the housing bust. So this isn't actually happening right now. I think like sawdust was like an old story. But I think like like after the housing bust. Uh, in like there was like a real decline in wood production, and this was like a decade ago. And there were, then there, therefore, because there wasn't enough wood, um, there wasn't as much sawdust, which is you know byproduct of wood being made. And sawdust, I think, was like really important for like the cows to like sleep in or something like to make their them more comfortable. <laughs> and so that that caused a real big problem with uh, the dairy industry because they couldn't like rest the cows, and then they had to like <laughs> that caused the price of milk to shoot up. But we actually like really do see that. I mean, I do think that that like sort of like speaks to, again, this sort of like the problem with like saying like oh it's fiscal stimulus and all this demand is why we're having all these issues with things. I think the economy is sort of filled with stuff like that. You know, the economy is filled with like an unexpected connection between the price of between a housing bust causing a decline in wood production, causing a decline in sawdust production, causing a place where you can't like, uh, you know, rest your cows. And so then you don't have as many cows and then the price of milk goes up. Like, you know, we have numerous things like this. We sort of like, you know, you like take them for granted because things move smoothly. And it sort of gets back to what I think of, you know, when I was talking about the back end, like the software systems or the sort of like the informal nature of many of these connections. They work fine in sort of like when things are balanced normally or when we're not stretching things to capacity. But suddenly these sort of like informal weird connections turn out to be incredibly important to how the entire economy runs. And you get these, you know, like again, and, you know, we're seeing it right now. Like, look, we're seeing an issue right now where electricity prices 
out of like China have like really gone up for various reasons there. And then that spilled into issues with uh, energy prices in Europe. And that's contributing to a spike in fertilizer prices. And the increase in fertilizer prices is causing uh, issues for grain sellers. And the issues for grain sellers is once again hitting issues for the dairy producers because the dairy producers obviously, you know, like, uh, they can't just they don't want to just kill the animal like the meat companies. They want to, like, keep them alive. So they have to, like, keep feeding them. So that might hit the price of dairy. Like there is a, a the the idea of like trying to, like, disambiguate this stuff of like supply and demand becomes ludicrous when you start looking at like all of these like sort of like interconnectedness of various commodities and the supply chains that move them. Almost like a production of commodities by means yeah. of commodities. Yeah, as it it's, were. Just, it's an endless chain of them. And like. The idea that it's like we're going to have like, oh, we're going to say what's going to happen with inflation because here's two lines on a chart and this is the price that they cross at. It's just like ludicrous when you actually start talking to people in the industry. And, you know, again, like housing, right? Like, you know, you could have like all of the parts of a house totally all set. But all you like, you know, if you're like missing like the faucet, the entire house is unusable because no one's going to move into a house that doesn't have a sink. Right. So, like, again, it's like. All these little things that might seem minor, but if, like, one thing gets out of whack, then it could take a really long time. And I think we're learning that there is no easy sort of return to equilibrium even as things sort of, quote, unquote, normalize. And, and that's the key, right? That's the key of what's going on right now is, like, there's not this kind of shortage of goods in general. Yes. But the slowness of getting a good from a, point A to point B to point C is creating situations where people have everything but yeah. and good. Yeah. And production can't go on without that and good delaying that process and that delay Yep. is then creating a bottleneck elsewhere. And so there's sort of this, you know, kind of ring around it, the rosy, handing the bottleneck yes. over one thing at a time that gets, quote unquote, worse and worse as these delays accumulate. And it's yes. really an accumulation of delays yes. rather than, uh, oh, we just, you know, don't have the capacity or not able to produce enough of this good. Yeah. And then the other thing, and supply chain uh, experts talk about this a lot is this, you know, they talk about this idea of the bullwhip effect and how this magnifies. So let's say, you know, one, you know, like if you read like some of these like um, manufacturing surveys that they do, whether it's like the ISM uh, or the Dallas Fed, it's always very colorful commentary. And they ask people like, well, you know, some anecdotal things about what's going on. And they're like, oh, a meat producer in uh, uh, so-and-so, like, can't get there. Like, they have the meat. They actually produced it, et cetera. They cut it, but they can't get it to the grocery stores because they uh, g didn't get a delivery of uh, the styrofoam trays that they pack it in, right? So it's like one little thing like that. They didn't get the styrofoam trays, so they can't get the meat to the grocery store. But then what happens is, and this is a phenomenon that I think is like, you know, business school people who study, do, like, supply chain stuff understand very well, this idea of the bullwhip effect, the meat producer then goes back and is like, yikes, I can't get my uh, styrofoam tray orders in. Okay, so when I place my next order, I'm going to place triple the order for styrofoam trays because if they're coming intermittently, then I don't want to be stuck short styrofoam trays anymore. So I'm going to place triple the order next time there's any availability so that I have a big buffer, which is great for them if they get that order. But then the styrofoam tray manufacturer 
is is now getting flooded with demand because they're getting like uh, buyers who maybe want to buy out for the next three months or maybe they previously bought for the next month. I'm just making up the numbers, but you get the idea. And A, that then exacerbates the shortage because then they're like further strained. And B, it really makes it hard to plan because then it's hard, you know, you lose visibility. It's like, wait, is there like a structural increase in demand for styrofoam trays? Like, should I start investing more in styrofoam tray manufacturing? Or is this just the uh, is this just a bunch of people pre-buying styrofoam trays and I'm going to get zero orders from st- for styrofoam trays in 2022? And so then, you know, it's sort of this cliche that like talking heads are like, oh, we need certainty, right? Like it's like we need certainty. This is like genuine business uncertainty because then if you're the styrofoam tray manufacturer, you really have a tough time planning for 2022 because you don't want to necessarily extrapolate 2021 dem- uh, demand if it turns out that it's just a bunch of people pre-buying. And so business gets really tough in that environment. Yeah. So that bullwhip effect is really an effect of we haven't been building sufficient inventories. We've been doing everything in uh, just-in-time delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, crap, now we're suddenly in a situation where just-in-time doesn't work anymore. So now I want. I, actually, I do want an inventory, and I'm going to try to create that whole inventory right right now. Yeah, and that that creates you know the, that kind of effect gets pa- uh, passed around. Of, yeah, you know, well, every everyone wants wants the inventory, and you know, if you don't look very carefully, it can just be like, oh, we have a shortage of goods, but really, there's this like fallacy of composition where yeah. me triple ordering. Um, makes sense because, yeah. you know, I'll, then I'll have my supply once I get my supply, but you're just causing the problem where someone else is suddenly, you know, going to be get short because yeah. their delivery is two weeks late because you got all of it and they're going to put in a triple order and so on and yep. so forth that you get this set of order backlogs, which from, you know, a vague point of view might go, oh, well, demand's too high. We need to, we need to cut back on demand. But it's really a coordination problem yep. of like coordinating, you know, who's going to be building inventory at what time. And that coordination process is broken down and you need some way to re-coordinate what's going on. That's a, Yeah. And, and uh, I'm not sure that a 25 basis point rate hike <laughs> is going, you know, it's like, you know, it's sort of obviously we joke about this all the time. It's like, oh, our rate hike's going to uh, suddenly make it so that someone's picking up the containers at the port of Los Angeles. But it does get to this point, look, like there is these disruptions, there is this sort of ensuing uh, price volatility, elevated inflation. But when you just think about the simplicity of what you just described, the sort of like failure to coordinate who wants to have the excess inventories at any given time, you start to realize the sort of insufficiency of like traditional supply and demand levers. Like it's clearly not enough to like solve problems like that. And so, you know, it's like obvious, you know, whether it's like a centralized authority or whatever, or A, you just like maybe you just wait and eventually it smooths out or B, some sort of like more aggressive like planning with a capital P is required. I mean, you know, one thing like that, you know, it's like it's kind of like bank run dynamics in a sense. I mean, a styrofoam tray is not systemic like the way a bank is, but you get these sort of like issues where for any given buyer of styrofoam trays, the logical thing to do is like go to the bank and take all of it out at once and build up your cash reserves. But when everyone does it, it creates real instability. You know, one question I, I wanted to ask is, you know, 
we, we talk about the uh, about these things and you know a lot of the focus is on private business decision making. Yeah. But you know, if you think about like a, you, you think about a port, yeah, you think about an airport, yep, you think about our rails, and you know, these are, are also, you know, public institutions. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know, they're the private actors operate on them, but they're fundamentally, you know, public institutions yeah. with where, you know, often uh you know public whether it's local government or the federal government are are responsible for them for in various ways, greater to lesser degree. How much of what's going on and how much of the bottleneck, rather than, you know, you know, reserve capacity requirements for businesses, how much of that is is been a lack of public investment in in these things? So, you know, for example, if we invested a lot more in rail yeah. and, it's, and also light local rail, that we would have the kind of we would have the rails to yeah. bring goods from point A to point B to point C that inherently would be a lot easier because we have this mechanism yeah. rather than, you know, the bottleneck of the ports and no. the trucking and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's totally true. I mean, literally, you know, the port of L.A., the guy who runs the port of L.A., Gene Soraka, is an employee of the city of Los Angeles. And his boss, I think, is the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. So you're, we're literally talking about a public municipal institution. Now, of course, there's a lot of subcontracting in the actual operations to private companies and so forth. But we're literally talking about, you know, public infrastructure. So I think there's a lot of dynamics there. I mean, you know, there has not been a lot of investment in port capacity. And, you know, you mentioned um, that the the ships are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, My understanding is that the very biggest ships can't go to the port of Los Angeles because it hasn't uh, it's not deep enough. There hasn't been the investment in that port such that it can receive the world's largest ships and they have to go elsewhere. And in theory, I think at some point something could have been done about that. But there hasn't been the public spending on the rail side. You know, it's interesting. uh, You mentioned the sort of like our rail system is maybe kind of antiquated in this country. The actual like companies that the railroad stocks, like if you look at like the, the actual like the listed stock price of Union Pacific, they are phenomenal winners. I mean, these were like n- sort of like minor players, small companies like in the 80s and 90s, who in many cases, like you would think you're like looking at like the stock of like Google or something. So like the actual like companies that operate this stuff have enjoyed incredible profit gains over the years, which is great for them. But I think it sort of implicitly on some levels speaks to, you know, there is not a like there's not a lot of spare capacity in this place, the uh, in, in this space. The the companies that operate have enjoyed incredible uh, rents. And uh, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, as you, as you said, like the, we do not have like a robust network of light rail or rail that can. Uh, so, we're, of course, we're really reliant on trucks. Uh, it's concentrated. A handful of companies have done extraordinarily well. So I do think that like from like a pure like, you know, it, it is a there is a huge element of what's going on. And I would say both public and private underinvestment. And I would say there's the literal public underinvestment in core infrastructure. And then there's the failure of um, public institutions to maintain growth, to maintain demand such that private companies maintain their infrastructure. And, you know, one of the first sort of episodes that we did, like more on the commodities front, uh, had to do with the lumber market. Because it was the kind of the canary in the coal mine. Lumber prices, like, absolutely soared very early this year. And a lot of it is simply that after the housing bust, 
a bunch of sawmills like went out of business in part because like, well, it's never coming back. And for about, you know, for a decade, and I would actually say still, even with all like the demand for housing these days, there is a um, a deep anxiety about any player in the housing market to invest in sustained capacity increase because the scars of the 2007 to 2009 bust are so deep that very few companies actually want to make the commitment to permanently like increase capacity in a real way. In other words, as bad as things are now, there's this overwhelming sense, especially based yeah. on the experience of the last decade, that this is just a fluke. This yep. is just, yep. you know, the special yep. period yep. that, you know, and eventually it'll go away. And then, you know, we'll be yeah. right back into. And, and the weird thing is, too, like, you know, there's like the, you know, there's. We know we need housing. I mean, there's always more people who need want to live somewhere, but there is this deep fear. And so, like, you know, there's this uh, great housing analyst that we've had on our show, Ellie Wolf. She works for this analyst firm, uh, Zonda. Really great. Really gets in the weeds. But she, you know, first of all, like, just coming out of like the acute crisis. Obviously, like, home buying activity collapsed in March 2020 because you know everything collapsed, and then it started picking up pretty good hard in April, but everyone is like, okay, but this can't last. Like, this is going to be the last week of it. This is just like a one-time temporary move wave. And then May came. It's like, this is this this isn't going to last. This is just a very temporary, like, people moving out of the city because they're fleeing. It's like June, July. And it just kept going. At no point did anyone believe it. So we've had this, like, now we've had, like, you know, 18 months of this booming housing market. And I would still say that even at this point, my impression is that by and large, people don't uh, believe it. They don't really believe that there can be sustained demand for homes, demand for windows, demand for bathtubs, demand for anything that people want, demand for faucets, such that, and to be fair, like, you know, the macro policymakers in D.C. have not done a very good job of, over the years, of uh, sort of keeping us in a state of fairly, like, full employment by any stretch or robust growth or anything like that. So I don't think you can, like, blame any business businesses for the assumption that at some point the Fed is going to hike rates or they're going to do or, you know, we're going to have austerity or something such that growth reverts and we can't sustain any sort of, like, sustained pace of demand for what they're selling. You know, Joe, we've talked about it a lot. Um, we've gone for almost an hour now, yeah. so I do want to uh, wrap it up soon. But I think on the final question, I yeah. think it's really important, which I've you know been thinking, you know, of course, thinking about all the time. But I more and more have been thinking about as you've been talking, which is, you know, connect these issues to climate change. Because, of yeah. course, you know, on, you know, in terms of carbon emissions, whatever yeah. else emissions, of course, a ton of those admissions are in the process of producing goods, shipping them around the world, yeah. uh, driving them on trucks and bringing them on to retail stores or to homes um, and big warehouses and then bringing them to homes where people consume, consume them in their homes. You know, this, of course, you know, a big part right. of this whole infrastructure that we're, that we're talking about is an infrastructure that consumes a ton of energy yep. and uses up carbon, uh, produces carbon in all sorts of ways, big and small. And I wanted to, you know, pick up on the, on the fact that when, you know, rail doesn't, doesn't do it all, especially right. light rail trucking, which is just little, you know, you think about individuals in a vehicle where yep. they're burning fossil fuel, bringing yep. items from point A to point B, 
that's what picks up the the slack. Yeah, and we have ports that use up fossil fuel in all sorts of ways, big and yep. small. That to stop doing it, they would have you need a big investment push, which would be a largely a public investment push yep. to make them run on clean energy. So I wanted to you know prod you a little bit to think about you know the implications of the the carbon or the fossil fuel infrastructure yeah. that goes through this whole process and what this experience with our supply chain you know issues in the last year year and a half tell us about what reorganizing this infrastructure around a project to decarbonization a, a what it would look like and b what the implications are for that project from what we know about how this whole process works. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a fascinating question. And I think like what, you know, you homed in on the trucking is like, that is our, it is, as I mentioned, there is this sort of like deep boom bust cycle in it. And so that is our shock absorber. That is what, when there's a spike in demand, it goes through trucking, et cetera. And that, you know, we all know there's just like an extraordinary carbon fossil fuel intensive project. And of course, there are many other parts of the ports, obviously, highly energy, uh, high degree of energy consumption. Interestingly, you know, one of the reasons that ships got bigger was partly to the, uh, you know, there was a belief among the industry that that would save on fuel costs. They actually go slower than the old ships. Um, uh, they, But the on net, uh, they are perceived to be like sort of like, I don't know, per unit of good shipped, uh, more fuel efficient than the previous generation of smaller ships. Nonetheless, it is, you know, it's it's a it's Herculean. And I think, look, there's a lot of like the trucking industry is a really good example of like the challenge ahead, I think, because it is so like. I don't know. I don't want to say intractable is the right word because I don't like really believe in like fatalism or that things can't be solved. But here is like an industry that's like deeply deep problems that people have been aware of for a very long time. The lack of truck drivers, the um, you know, all kinds of problems, the boom bust cycles and so forth. And, you know, this is the biggest employment area in, in the U.S., and yet even there, it's been very difficult to summon like the sort of like political will to like do anything structural. So like, I don't know, like, you know, connecting it like specifically to the project of decarbonization, I would hope that, you know, I hear uh, people who are much smarter than I, but I would say like, if I'm being honest, my view is that it's um, the, what we've learned over the last year and a half should it is I find it intimidating from that perspective, thinking about how, thinking about the deep rot that's been built up, thinking about the hollowness of the investment that's built up and how much we are like literally paying for that right now. And so then thinking about like building the political will to actually make the public investment to do it. And, you know, I think one of one of the favorite things that I've read on this in a long time, I think it was something you wrote, I think it was in, in Business Insider. It's like, this has to be a public spending. The climate challenge should be a public spending, should be publicly financed. And that it should, you know, the, if we're going to do it right, that it's not something that oh, we want to do through like ESG scorecards and so forth. And, you know, leveraging the power of the market or whatever, uh, getting some, you know, this should be a public investment. And I think it's going to be, you know, the lesson of the last year and a half 
it's really difficult. I mean, look at like we just have this like huge bill, and at the time we're recording this, November second, we don't really know what's going to happen like with Biden's like bill, right? But it feels disconnected in a sense from like what's going on right now, right? So we're learning the lesson of underinvestment. Setting aside cli- car- uh, climate for a second, we're learning the lesson right now of what happens when you let key infrastructure sort of um, hollow out and decay for years and years after the great financial crisis, and in some case for much longer, maybe since the 70s or 80s and some, and for some of these things. We're learning the lesson of like uh, the price you pay for waiting, and yet... I don't think it may, you know, for all of the investment that's happening, it feels kind of insufficient. It doesn't really feel like, oh, we're going to, like, really address deeply uh, some of, like, the core, like, bottlenecks. There isn't, like, a ton for the ports, et cetera. And so I think, like, you know, thinking about the carbon question, I think we're learning uh, that, A, you pay a pretty big price for waiting. And we're learning that certainly right now with infrastructure. You pay a really big price eventually uh, the longer you wait. It sort of compounds. And B, building the actual political will to address the thing that we're seeing as the problem is pretty difficult. So, I don't know. I guess it's uh, kind of bleak. <laughs> but uh, well, I hope I mean, you should have a I, I would, you know, if you have a, a future guest who could just explore the angle of that, I will be an eager listener to it. Well, this is notes on the crises, so I think I've staked my bet on uh, how things are going to be going for a a while longer than that, and that uh, that that fits uh, that fits that view. Um, So, thank you, Joe, so much for being my uh, first guest on the Notes on the Crises podcast. And where can people find uh, your work and your podcast? Well, like I said, I'm a huge fan of your stuff, and uh, Nathan. So honestly, as a real, I'm very flattered to have been the first uh, guest on your new podcast, which I will be an avid listener of. I really appreciate you inviting me. I had a great time. Uh, obviously, people can um, listen. Uh, I would hope check out my podcast, which is the Odd Lots podcast. It's available everywhere. And me and my co-host Tracy Alloway, we write on our blog Bloomberg.com/slash. Odd Lots. You can check out our writing on all these topics and more there. Thank you so much, Joe. And uh, to find um, more podcasts like this and more writing on related topics, please go to crisisnotes.com. That's C-R-I-S-E-S-N-O-T-E-S.com. And thank you for listening. Notes on the crisis.